I can't stand looking directly into a light bulb. I think it's the worst disturbance there is. And you, the light should always be diffused. It should always be indirect. You should never see the source of light. Welcome to House Guest with me, Carol Annett, Interiors Editor at Country and Townhouse magazine. Here I chat to those clever creatives behind the houses, hotels and brands you see in glossy magazines like ours. Guests including interior designers and architects, as well as celebrities dipping their toe into the world of decorating. We're sponsored by Durovit Bathrooms. Upgrade your everyday. For bathroom inspiration, visit the website at juravit.co.uk. Count Benedict Bolsa and his wife, Donna Nencecosini, preside over a thousand-year-old castle on the edge of Umbria, grown organically over many years like the landscape in which it sits. Hotel Castello di Rescio sits in a place of sublime scenery, convivial fine dining and beautiful bespoke interiors. You can lose yourself for days, um, which frankly, Benedict, is what I have done. And I can't believe I'm going home tomorrow. Thank you very, very much for your hospitality here. What I feel here, there's such a sense of patience and of putting down roots. Tell me how you and your family came to be here. (laughs) It's a long story. (laughs) It is a very long story. And, you know, you're never in control of your life. But, uh, you know... We, we lost all our land and estates in Hungary. Well, my father did when he was a young boy. He fled in, in 49 and he was only five and fled to Austria. And so he always, growing up, always had this urge to recreate a family center and, and have land and, and, and possibly even have horses of his own. And so my parents, a long time ago in 84, stumbled across Umbria, stumbled across this area and, um, you know, fell in love and found this fabulous old parish and church on top of the hill. Everything was so romantic and abandoned here, but not abandoned in a negative or sort of too nostalgic way. It was very poetic. But he only bought, he bought a tiny piece of land. That's right, because he fell in love with this bell tower, really. It's a church and bell tower and a parish all in one, very Umbrian in that sense. There's a church on every hill, basically, wherever you look. And so they very courageously, young and, um, you know, excited, bought this thing for probably very little back then. Um, there was nobody really in Umbria buying property. And they didn't realize that it was an island on the estate of Vesca. Um, because, of course, it was church property. It was the only piece of property that didn't belong to the estate. So they bought the only island that they then ended up in the middle of the estate on the highest point. And then, of course, after years of living here and making it into their holiday house, et cetera, I wanted to find a way how to expand around the house and therefore ended up, I'm cutting a long story very short, uh, ended up buying the entire estate in 1994, 10 years later. And the entire estate was 50 farmhouses, the castle, these wonderful buildings that we're in now, like this wonderful old factory of the 1940s where they processed all the tobacco. It was a very rich agricultural area. And so what? I, I was studying architecture in 94 when my parents bought in, in London and very excited. I had sort of grown up here for at least 10 years before that. So it was very familiar with the area, very familiar with many of the ruins on the estate, because that's where we were exploring and looking and playing around with. And so I, I, you know, I thought, well, this is brilliant. You know, I'd love to get involved. And 
they needed help because you know we, we need there was nothing here there was no infrastructure there was no water connections uh, we have no public supplies of any sort we had to bring in power we had to bring in, create our own water and aqueduct system and of course we had to find a, a model of what to do with the estate so i joined in 1999 after my parents had done the hard work because they sort of set up the idea and realized the first two houses and what and was there a future plan to put a, always have a hotel or did that come after the dream was always to convert the castle in a hotel. I mean, it, it became a sort of, it, it was an obvious sort of thing to, to, to label it as a, a ideal for a hotel, but it wasn't really serious back then because, you know, we needed to do so many other things before even thinking about a hotel. Plus, mm -hmm. Umbria wasn't really on the map. So to imagine a hotel back in the early 90s in the middle of Umbria here was something that we knew wasn't the right time. Yeah, and, we, and we certainly weren't ready. But yeah, everyone's going to Tuscany. That's right. And then there's a wonderful um, sort of circle of events with your wife as well. Tell us, tell us that little story, well, the coincidence. You know, well, we were living in London, and, and, and so we moved down together in 99, and we were getting married that year, and moved into the castle, actually, that today is the hotel. You know, it was all very provisional, and the place was, you know, slightly crumbling, and raining through the roof, and we had buckets under the, the attic was full of, buckets to collect the water when it rained but we loved our sort of beginning of life and then and that's really when we it's quite seriously started to imagine what it could be like as a hotel we knew it intimately we stayed there for 11 years had five children during the time we lived there and discovered many things about the hotel because of the hotel roughly but the castle then and one of the wonderful stories was that that Mencher's family back in the 17th century had a pope in, in the family, uh, Clement XII, and he... And that's not, I mean, that's quite an unusual um, thing to have, relation, yes. relation a, a, as a pope. Yes, it, it is. And, you know, it's a typical big Florentine family, and, you know, there was always the thing of who's going to be the next pope, and it was very political. If, if you had a Florentine pope, then Florence was in the, in, in the good books of, of Rome, and, and so, you know, there was a lot of politics to back then in terms of... Um, uh, who we pope when um but in any case uh, so uh, but the interesting thing is that his niece uh, corsini married a bicchi ruspoli the fam that is the family that owned the castle from 1630 to 19 1920 i think and the pope gave their son the title count of vescu and so we, this was an incredible discovery because nobody knew or remembered or and, but my, my father-in-law checked it up in the archives and found the, the documentation of all of that and so it was extraordinary. So now, you know, those, we have two rooms that are named after Uncle Pope and uh, you know, the nephew, uh, the Count of Vesky. And actually in the, the embroidery on the sheets and on the napkins is CDR, which is not Castello di Rescio. It's, count, it's the Count that exactly. you are... Exactly, Conte di Rescio. And of course, you could tell also by the crown. Of course, most hotels put crowns everywhere. But that's the <laughs> crown of a... You've earned yours. Yours is real. Well, yes, it's, it's a allowed. real one. I mean, it's not ours, but it's of that uh, the famous ancestor who, who, who was sort of given this title by the Pope. And, and, you know, it's a lovely part of history of the place. Now, you sort of call it a hotel. It's a, there are 36 rooms. It's relatively small. And you have designed all the interiors and most of the furniture that goes into the room. So how did that come about? Well, the real headache, let's say, was how to 
design all the, lo the logistics of the hotel, you know, how to lay it out. You know, do we squeeze in 50 bedrooms and make corridors or do we make huge bedrooms that is a difficult market because you sort of only have suites. But I didn't want to have small bedrooms because I didn't want to cut up the whole place or take away this wonderful old identity of, of the interior spaces. We, we would have been allowed to change interior arrangements. It's a listed building. So of course we couldn't make new openings, but luckily the, the, the house is blessed with lots of windows. So that wasn't the problem, but I didn't want any corridors. But it's also how the systems would go in, how to do the structural bit, where to create a large room that we didn't have for you to have an afternoon tea in, you know, the, the sort of lobby that we don't use that word, it's the palm court. I wanted the sort of old world glamour, you know, hotel atmosphere. And, uh, but we didn't want to make it feel like a, like a big grand hotel D whatever. We, we wanted it to feel like a, like a well-run private house. Yeah, which is exactly um, what it does feel like. And what I love about it and what is extremely clever is that you say there's no, no corridors and it's not, it's not something that you sort of, you notice, but what you realise is that actually you don't really bump into people or, or when you do, it's there, you notice somebody who's sitting outside in a little area by a, a fire grate or, a, yeah. or they're sitting in the, in the garden or by the pool. Or, but there's such a sense of peace here that you don't really... It doesn't feel busy, even when it's there's a lot of people here. Yeah, and very much so. Also, during the very high season, where not only the hotel was very full, but also many of the houses or guests came to have an afternoon drink or to to go to the restaurant in the evening. And you know, there were more people in the place than can sleep, and you couldn't see them, you couldn't feel them. But, you know, you could see, you obviously would see some people around, but it didn't feel like, oh my god, where do I go? Where do I sit? And that was a wonderful, wonderful thing because we weren't quite sure how it would feel when it's full. And there are also um, subtle little things like you, I know you're very serious about not having any plastics and kind of things in the room, even so far as having to design your own coffee machine so that you didn't have any nasty little capsules to throw away and not having lights shining when people turn the lights off at night and moving all the electrics away from the bed. And you even put special toppers on the bed so that there's a, you, you, you have a magnetic, tell me about that, something, something to do with magnets in the toppers that allow you to sleep better. Yes, it's, it's about shielding. I mean, we, we shield the electromagnetic currents or potential electric fields underneath the bed with this shielding system where it means that when you're sleeping on top of it, you don't get any, any, any of that affecting you. But why is that important to you? I mean, I, will, I, I know I'm sleeping very well here, but I you know, couldn't tell you that was the, you know, it may have been the wine at dinner, <laughs> exactly. which is also very good. <laughs> which is why we don't really want to write about it. We want people to feel well and not necessarily know why. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully we'll associate it to just the, the general experience of the entire place. Yeah. But for me, I, I, I am very sensitive and I, that's because we, we don't travel much. And when we do, it's wherever we go, it's very contrasting to our you know, phenomenal life here, which is submerged in nature, quiet evenings, uh, absolutely no noise in terms of traffic or, or other wild noise, wildlife noise and nature. And when you live in the country for so many years and you don't really go out into the big city much, 
you, I think you, you just become so attuned to these things that when you suddenly go to a hotel room somewhere and realize that there's so many lights on, you turn the light off, but actually there's an iPad flashing over there. There's an alarm clock that is so bright opposite you, staring in your face. And there's another one on the left and there's, a lot, there's something ticking in your ear, which is that silly clock that you can... And there's always something, and then somebody always invents something new in a hotel room with some more technology. So the amount <laughs> of stuff... And the amount of electromagnetic currents that are in rooms, I find appalling often. And then the electrics is often not right. You've got, you know, I don't want to, and there's, there's many fabulous hotels. And I, as you can tell, I haven't traveled much. And I'm, I'm, I'm not talking for all those fabulous other hotels that I've never seen. But of course, you know, often it's, it's, it's the easy place to put all the, the switch, the switchboards or, or, or electric um, circuit areas behind the bed because that's where they're well hidden but it's the worst place for your health to sleep mm. so it's just we avoided all that and i didn't want lights on my rule was when you turn off the light the, the room is dark and there's no leds anywhere mm. and we couldn't find a coffee machine that wasn't touch you know everybody wants touch you know touch panels and red screens or things telling telling you things and i said i just want a simple machine with simple buttons that you can push and it's always on. And of course I wanted the paper um, tablets, these wonderful paper tablets with phenomenal quality coffee, can times better than any other very famous commercial brands I won't mention. <laughs> um, really 10 times better because you can you know what's inside and where the coffee is ground. Or, you know, this, but this is Italy. Yeah. You can make anything here local. Yeah. That's what we did. Everything is made local yeah. and the same with the furniture, of course, as you mentioned at the beginning. But the lighting is very important to me. I, I did not want, and some people might find it a little bit too dim, which is why we also have reading lamps, but hopefully that, that's worked for you staying here. But my other fixations, I, I can't stand looking directly into a light bulb. I think it's the worst disturbance there is in human. Um, the light should always be diffused. It should always be indirect. Um, you should never see the source of the light direct. And so that was something I, I was very careful. And so I, I designed all the lamps ourselves and had them all made. Of course, they became part of, of the collection of the endless things we're always making for clients and guests. And now it's got to the point where you can buy your furniture on first dibs or via Artemis. Yes. Um, it's, uh, but ha seeing it in, in its own setting, in the kind of, I mean, it, it, obviously it's a, it's a beautiful, you know, we're in a kind of the highest quality hotel. Uh, you know, it's it's completely sublime. But actually, there's such a simplicity, which is what I love. You know, the yes. terracotta floors and the natural colours and the polished plaster walls. You know, I think there's something very. It's bringing you back to nature, which is what the whole place does to you. You know, you walk you walk down to the swimming pool and you're surrounded by these beautiful cypress trees and and just nothing. There's, there's no Everything is taken is paired back to the to the most simple thing for maximum enjoyment. Yeah, well, you know, the, the beauty is that we had a fabulous canvas to work on, mm. and in a way, we've learned so much by being here for so long and having such a phenomenal imprint of an of an old estate, mm. old roads, old cypress trees, old houses that have been there for five, six, seven hundred years. The castle's there since exactly a thousand years. So that, and they weren't modernized in the 60s or 50s or 80s. You know, it, it was, 
much older and nicer, if you know, you know what I mean. And there was no wrong infrastructure. So, of course, then when you're here, you've done a lot of restoration, you love the estate so much, all you want to do is do things to improve it from all angles, not only from one. And of course, you learn doing houses for, for our dear house owners, that you learn so much about what to do, what not to do, because we manage everything we've ever built down to the smallest details. So we, we, we know all the mistakes we've done in the last 25 years. I would say that each architect had to manage their own, their own designs. They would in many ways probably design differently from the outset. Uh, you know, they have to do all of it and, and be, be, in, be in touch with it for the rest of their life. So you've, you have, there are 28 houses on the estate that you've sold. You have the castle, and then there are other ruins which are for sale and then you as the architect you will come in and once somebody has bought the house you then work with them to create their home and then they if they want to rent it out they can and you you will manage it as the estate um, but they're not joining a club or anything sort of formal in that sense it's their house that's correct and then if they want to come and have a drink at the bar or listen to the jazz music or whatever's going on that's entirely up to them but it's their house on the estate, which is a, and I love the fact, I mean, I, I saw your father this morning driving okay. um, with the Labrador in the back. I think wow. he was going to the equestrian center. Or yes. That, but it, it's that, you know, it, it's, it is a real, it's your home. It's a, and it's, you know, and if people come here, even if you come as a hotel guest, you know, I mean, I can imagine there's an enormous amount of repeat visit because it, it does feel like you, you're coming somewhere that's so welcoming that you want to come back. Yeah. You want to repeat the experience. Yes. Um, and tell me about some of the things that you organize here, because I understand that you have an estate choir. Well, yes, there's so much life on the estate in many ways. Music is a big part. Um, uh, we have a, a director of music, uh, choir master, Sergio. And, you know, the jazz scene is quite big because Umbria Jazz is a, is a very famous festival that's running since over 50 years in Perugia, mainly around Perugia, so close to us. And because of that, we have lots of young jazz musicians who live here. And they're all keen to perform and come. And so we, we have live music on the estate three times a week, uh, evenings uh, at our bar centrale. And also have our own choir because it's so good with all the members of staff and, 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 and members of the household work here it's 160 people now we employ and it's just nice to have a, a bit of a community amongst all the people and a lot of them are local I mean we don't you know there's some people come from further away the majority are people from the area working and so it's lovely to be part of something and to learn how to sing and sing together and Nench and I are both part of the choir and enjoy immensely to, to sing with anybody wants to, to join but Sergio is the magic of the whole thing without him we wouldn't have the choir that sense of community and from what i understand you didn't realize that you had that until you started you had somebody coming to speak you didn't realize what an incredible amphitheater you had kind of created almost Indeed. by mistake well, well <laughs> absolutely you've, you've touched an interesting point because back in 2001 when we were living in the castle we were only in our second year of living there Ennio Morricone performed, his son rather conducted, but Ennio was there as well, um, performed all the soundtrack of the mission, famous film, the mission. And we all realized how phenomenal the acoustics were in the courtyard. It was just a try. We said, well, we've got the courtyard. Why not? It's a nice setting, not knowing about acoustics at all. 
and he was astounded by how good this, the, the acoustics was. So since then, I've designed that area so we can do small concerts and record for the concert. Yeah, it's beautiful. And and actually, the only the only bit of the castle which is the where is your palm court area where you've kind of melded two buildings together with a, a steel structure. Yes, I enclosed the sort of tighter part of this courtyard. It's called a bit like a snail, actually. And it sort of goes into a tight square at the end. And that end square I closed off quite neatly with this fabulous, very tall, four-story tall glass and steel structure, but giving it the clear style and, and elegance of, of the sort of turn of the centuries of the 1910s, 1920s. Um, and you know, cast iron painted and lots of glass. And that really helped because we need that space to, to be able to sit in. There's a fabulous piano. We have a, we found, we're so lucky to find a brown old um, Steinway in 1908, beautifully restored, but nobody wanted because it was brown, because I was looking for a brown one. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks, thanks to the fact that nobody wanted it, the price was very little, even though the sound is phenomenal this piano. So it was a real, it's a real gem. I mean, anybody, I, I don't know a thing about pianos, but I, everybody who's come, including some very famous people who play them, said it's extraordinary that this, this piano is very special. And it's played every night in the palm court by a wonderful young uh, musician from the area. We have three or four, and they take it in turn and play the night. They love it. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. Um, I'll try and get there tonight. We're, we're, I've been enjoying the gin, the homemade gin, which is oh, good. very. <laughs> It's made very locally. It's made in Gubbio. Um, yeah. Well, it's very kind of you to leave it in the room, along awesome. with the honey, which I'm going to be taking home in my suitcase. Excellent. Benedict, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to House Guests from Country and Townhouse magazine with me, Carol Annett. You can follow me on Instagram at Carol W. Annett. And keep up to date on all the podcast news and show notes online at countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash podcast.